I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Horror in the Middle East as the death toll passes 2,000. Reports emerge that Israel is readying for a ground offensive of Gaza. Plus, RTE introduced a round of staff redundancies in order to combat 61 million euro shortfall. We want to, to see that they're, they're, they're able to, to stop the waste and invest instead. And the man questioned by Gardaí on suspicion of the murder of Tina Satchwell is released without charge. First to some breaking news this evening. Irish-Israeli woman, Kim Dampty, who has been missing following the Hamas attack at a music festival in Israel last weekend, has died. Her family have just confirmed. I am joined now by former Fianna Fáil Minister for Defence, Willie O'Dea, People Before Profits, Paul Murphy, political reporter with the Irish Times, Jack Horgan-Jones, for reaction to this. This has literally just unfolded in the last 30 minutes. Jack, what more can you tell us at this point? Well, she was an Irish-Israeli woman. She was attending the, the music festival, which was one of the, the, the targets that was uh, that was attacked by, by Hamas over the weekend. And I think that ever since the news emerged that she was missing and as time went by, she hadn't been found. I think people were, were fearing for the worst. And and that tonight, that, that, that news has been confirmed um, both by her family and likely by the government, which has released a, a statement through the office of the Taunashina Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin, who has obviously offered his condolences uh, and, and uh, called out the, the deplorable actions that, that led to her death. But obviously, it very much in a very real sense brings home I think for for people the the, the terror and devastation that is unfolding in that part of the world um, and it's clear that even geographically remote areas like Ireland uh, aren't insulated from this in any way shape or form uh, and you know that's that's brought home by the death of this very young woman you know Kim Dante only 22 years old yeah, I saw a clip, um, an interview with her mother, Jennifer, who I understand is from um, Port Leash. Absolutely distraught, Jack. She knew, I think, 260 bodies had been recovered from this music festival, but her daughter, for days, unaccounted. And she was just bereft, I suppose, at the thought of what might have happened to her daughter. Yeah, and I think that she was she was very brave to go on a lot of broadcast media in Ireland and to discuss and to and to show the the pain that she was going through. Uh, because I think you're right, it was very it was very visceral, you know, the, the sense of loss or at least the the sense of impending loss that was dawning over her and the terror that she was that she was going through, you know, and and um you know you know our thoughts and everyone's thoughts I'm sure are with her and and her extended family this evening. One can only imagine the difficulty of, of losing a child in any circumstance, I think, as the Tanishta said tonight, but to lose a child in such devastating and violent circumstances, you know, the words can't even begin to to express how how terrible that must be. Mm, Willie O'Dea, um, 
Jack mentioned the statement this evening that comes from the Tonish <coughs> and one of the things he did say, which is anybody who looks at that photograph of a 22-year-old girl will see radiance emerging from her face. This was somebody who was at a music festival enjoying life, having fun, doing what any 22-year-old is meant to be doing. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, I, on my own behalf and <clears throat> on behalf of my party, I want to send condolences to her mother and her family. I mean, as you say, it is, a, is, is, it is a dreadful thing for a parent to lose a child, and particularly in circumstances like this, where there's a, you know, there's a period of uncertainty and then suddenly hope is extinguished. And she's obviously a beautiful, young, radiant-looking girl attending a musical festival, as you say. And I agree with Jack. I mean, it does sort of bring home to the, 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 the full extent of the barbarity which has occurred out there. And uh, it's 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 another life lost, another tragedy. It's a, it's a terrible tragedy for the family, and and they just our oh. thoughts are with them, obviously. Paul, your reaction? Yeah, it's horrendous news, obviously, for um, any family to be going through that. And um, my thoughts are with her family, um, and with the families of all those who have lost their lives over the last number of days, and who are losing their lives as we speak right now in Gaza. You have bombs being rained down on residential buildings. You have a siege being imposed. The hospital in Gaza City is now out of um, oil or diesel or whatever they use for their electricity, for their, their generator. Um, thousands of people are, are set to die in the coming days and weeks. Tens of thousands if a ground invasion is, uh, is launched. And that same you know, horrible pain that her family is feeling is going to be inflicted on, on thousands and thousands of more people. And I think that's why we have to say, stop the bombardment of Gaza, stop the siege of Gaza, denying water, food, electricity. It is a war crime that's been inflicted on the piece of people of Gaza um, and stop the, the occupation of Palestine. Okay, um, let me go to um, uh, one of the reports I had a little bit earlier in the programme. Israel continues to bombard Gaza in retaliation to a surprise attack five days ago. Israeli forces have reduced the buildings, as Paul was saying, to rubble and unleashed a humanitarian crisis in the region. Earlier, I caught up with news correspondent Ross Cullen, who's in Tel Aviv, and I started by asking him about the news that Israel has formed an emergency unity government there, a sign that may indicate a ground offensive is imminent. That uh, ground offensive is certainly going to be one of the main things that this unity government uh, could well be discussing. It's possible. We know that tens of thousands of uh, troops are massing on the uh, border area with Gaza, Gaza in southern uh, Israel. And uh, just speaking on Wednesday evening, uh, just a short time ago, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did say uh, that uh, we are going to, quote, crush and destroy Hamas as the world crushed and destroyed Daesh, or the so-called Islamic State. He said every member of Hamas is a dead man. And there were also other members of that unity government speaking on Wednesday because it is not just uh, the party of Benjamin Netanyahu. There are other opposition leaders who have joined as well. The former defence minister under a previous administration, Benny Gantz, uh, saying that there are no parties at the moment in Israel. There is only one. That's the Israeli uh, party. We have to be ruthless, he said, in eliminating this enemy. And so they are all singing from the same a hymn sheet in terms of their determination to crush Hamas. And previously, the Prime Minister has said that anywhere that Hamas are operating or deploying themselves inside Gaza is going to be turned to ashes. And so this unity government will have that possible ground incursion at the very front of their minds.
Is there the same support among the public in Israel, Ross, for this level of a response to what Hamas carried out? Yeah, so we've seen uh, the, the previous mass protests against Benjamin Netanyahu and his controversial judicial reforms. The leader of those uh, protests has said all of that is now put uh, to one side. And incidentally, uh, any uh, uh, MPs or, or TDs who'd be wanting to bring any other government business that's not related to the war, well, that will all have to be paused now. The war is the sole concern of this emergency governments and the war cabinets. And uh, we are going, learning some of the stories of uh, the attack that carried out and the events that happened over the weekend as, as villages by villages are being cleared by Israeli authorities. And uh, some of the, uh, the accounts that are now coming to light are often uh, we are finding reinforcing that uh, support for the uh, uh, military's response and this possible uh, military incursion into Gaza. There were reports earlier today, unconfirmed reports of a hostile aircraft, perhaps from Hezbollah. Any update on that? Yeah, that actually turned out to be a, a false alarm in terms of a hostile uh, incursion by, uh, by an aircraft. But there were uh, rockets fired. There were lots of red alerts uh, on Wednesday, and people were told to shelter in place here in uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, we also had to head for the bomb shelter because air raid sirens uh, went off. And then you have the distinctive thump, uh, really, that, that, that explosion of the, the inception of the uh, air defense system from uh, Israel, the Iron Dome missile. Uh, air defence system intercepting those rockets that were fired this way. But southern Israel has had lots of red alerts today. There have been rockets fired into southern Israel by Hamas and then also rockets fired into northern Israel by Hezbollah in Lebanon. I saw today quite disturbing reports across the media from family members of those people who have disappeared and those individuals who have been taken hostage. Do we have any update on how they are or where they are? Uh, it's just the, not only the, the, the killings, the mass killings that took place over the weekend, it is also those kidnappings, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Kira, Israeli nationals, foreign nationals, women, children, members of the Israeli armed forces taken back into Gaza by Hamas uh, militants. And there is this discussion under the way at the moment with other international players. Qatar uh, were reportedly involved, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, trying to work out if there's a path for negotiation as well, possibly an exchange of Palestinian prisoners for some of these Israeli and foreign nationals who are being held hostage. But Israel will also want to try to free those hostages. But they are being held in Gaza, and Hamas knows Gaza like the back of its hand, the hideouts, the tunnels, and the safe houses. And so that is a very precarious situation. We have seen videos from inside Gaza, perhaps um, suggesting that some of those hostages have already uh, been killed. In terms of how Hamas carried out this attack. There has been a lot of information appearing across the day about how they were able to breach security and intelligence. I suppose they would see it as so successfully. What have we learnt? Yeah, there were reports uh, that e Egypt had actually said 10 days uh, before the attack took place to Israel that uh, there is this going to be a major assault taking place. Uh, Israel said we received no such uh, warning, but there has been major criticism in the Israeli press uh, for the lack of understanding within the military intelligence uh, infrastructure that Israel has about the, the capabilities of Hamas. Were they too focused on uh, incidences in the occupied West Bank? Uh, did they not think that Hamas was as much 
much of a threat. Uh, there was certainly a lot of planning and preparation has gone into this uh, backing from outside uh, Pal Palestinian territories for Hamas's operations. We know that Iran was uh, praising the, um, the attacks that took place uh, over the weekend. Uh, but uh, the, the speed and the success that they had bulldozing through uh, different points, 29 different exit points out of Gaza, this very strong uh, border security breached. And then the speed at which they managed to make their way into villages or kibbutzes, the, the shared communal villages, as they're known here in Israel as well, to carry out those gun attacks uh, by sea as well and by air, even uh, paratroopers hang gliding over the border fence into southern Israel and uh, making their way to areas. For example, the infamous attack that took place on that music festival as well, not too far away, just across the fields uh, from uh, Gaza, where uh, more than 250 people lost their lives. That was Ross Cullen speaking to me from Tel Aviv just before we came on air this evening. We also spoke with UNICEF spokesperson James Elder, who described the lethal situation that is developing in Gaza and the impact that this conflict is having on children there. The situation in Gaza right now, as we speak, is literally lethal. In just four days, five days since these air attacks started, 320 plus children, hundreds of children have been killed in a really small space of time. More will no doubt be killed tonight, such as the severity of the of the bombing in a very small, in a very highly congested um, part of, of the world. Um, now, this is very important that we remember all the origins to this. And part of that, of course, is what happened over the weekend. UNICEF from the very first moment has been calling on the, 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 these children, there are Israeli children, not most likely somewhere in Gaza. Now they need to be released, these hostages. This is a breach of so many international humanitarian laws. They need to be back with their families in the same ways that it's outrageous what happened to civilians, to parents, to families in those kibbutzes. And as we look now, again, more children, Israeli children or Palestinian children. Palestinian children are undergoing severe bombing. There is nowhere safe right now. They don't simply know where to hide. If you're in a refugee camp in Gaza, you're often living in rubble that was someone else's home previously. If you're in what could have been a secure building, it can be knocked down, as we've seen so many. Hospitals are desperately overcrowded. There's almost two people in need with wounds of war as there are for every bed. At the same time, we hear of, you know, denials of, of water, of medicine, of fuel. These things are essential. Fuel is essential for a hospital. Surgeons are going to have to make decisions on who they operate on and who they can't operate on. Um, the water situation was already grave. So this is a treacherous place to be for children. And you hear that. You see it in the images. And you hear it from children's voices. They're scared. They're, they're, they're well. They're terrified, um, and, and they just they just want to be left alone. You know, they've suffered. They're in pain. But the only way to be left alone, of course, is for a longer-term political solution. Right now, what we so desperately need is humanitarian access, access a corridor for people to get out. Uh, those people who want to get out of Gaza to let them get out, and of course, a ceasefire. Now, UNICEF is on the ground. We've been on the ground with partners and we're still delivering things like medical supplies. But let's be clear, with the severity of the bombing and the number of children being killed, this is palliative care. The only thing that can keep these children in Gaza safe right now is a ceasefire. And that's what is so desperately needed. Not an escalation, not a ground offensive. UNICEF is non-political. We're there to pick up the pieces. But this is an unbearable situation for children in Gaza. It can't be allowed to get any worse.
Thanks to James Elder from UNICEF who spoke to us a little bit earlier. Now Professor of Politics at Dublin City University, Donica O'Bacon has joined my panel of Willie O'Dea, Paul Murphy and Jack Horgan Jones to discuss this conflict uh, further. To go to you uh, first, Donica, you hear James Elder saying what we really need now is a ceasefire. We do not need this to escalate. The idea that there is nowhere safe for these people in Gaza to go is a horrifying one. And yet we hear that a ground incursion is most likely at this point. The, the criticisms, I suppose, of Netanyahu, that he saw himself as, you know, Mr. Security, that there has been billions of euro pumped into intelligence and to security. The fact that this happened on his watch, does that inform in any way his response to what Hamas carried out? Oh, oh, of course it does. It's a major political setback for Netanyahu, uh, who did uh, try to cultivate this reputation as a, as a strong man. But the, the fate of the millions of people who live in, in Gaza now really lies with the decisions made by Prime Minister Netanyahu, who has you know, tweeted a video of Gaza being bombed and said, we must continue with all our strength. Uh, it relies on people like Benny Gantz, uh, former Israeli army chief who's back in the cabinet now, who in his last campaign, uh, videos was talking about uh, bombing uh, the people of Gaza back into the Stone Age, and and the defence minister who's described his adversaries as human animals and announced a complete siege of 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 Gaza in terms of all the necessities of life, of water, uh, of fuel, of food, and and Gaza is extraordinarily small and densely populated. We're talking about you know two and a half million people living in a territory that's less than half the size of County Louth. Uh, and they have nowhere to escape to. Uh, the Scottish First Minister, for example, his in-laws uh, are, are, are in Gaza, and he, he has said that he, he, he has no way of getting them out. And that is just reflective of all the people who are living there. It's been described by the UN uh, Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories as an open-air prison. You cannot get in. Well, certainly outside uh, people who can evaluate and document what's happening can't get in, and the people living there uh, can't get out. So we're looking at a, a large-scale human catastrophe and it will be largely as a result of as i said as decisions made by the israeli cabinet in the coming days they've mobilized over 300,000 reservists they have a standing army of 170,000 so you're talking about more than half a million uh, heavily armed people now heading uh, for what would be a, a ground offensive in, in Gaza. Right. And, and Donica, yeah, sorry. sorry to cut across you there, but we heard Joe Biden saying today that, you know, the US stands fully behind Israel, but we also hear that they are trying to secure safe passage for these innocent civilians uh, out of Gaza into Egypt. Can they, do you think, exert that type of influence? Will they be able to, you know, foster some sort of an agreement there to allow innocent civilians to leave Gaza? Well, unfortunately, past precedent doesn't suggest that the U.S. can exert leverage and perhaps sometimes doesn't have the willingness to exert leverage when the Israeli government has made a decision uh, to, to attack uh, Palestinians. I mean, the last major conflagration of 2014, the ratio of, you know, deaths between Palestinian civilians and Israeli civilians was 250 to 1. And, you know, we've seen the horrendous events of Saturday when, you know, there was mass murder uh, of Israeli civilians. Uh, that's unlikely to be repeated, very unlikely. Israel now is, is, is in the ascendancy. They have complete military superiority um, and they're in a very vengeful mood. They have an iron dome 
which is more or less supplied by external uh, donations from the United States, which protects them from most of those rockets that are fired from Hamas. But there is no one there providing a similar Iron Dome uh, to protect the people uh, of Gaza. OK, who, let me just put some of this um, to my panel here. Um, we have Billy O'Dea, former Minister for Defence in studio. Um, we've heard the, sort of the response from the US and we heard James Cleverly, um, the <coughs> case foreign today, who is in Israel, saying there's unwavering solidarity with Israel at this point. What do you make of that language, given what we are seeing in Gaza? Well, the first thing I make of it is that it may very well change before very long because there's no doubt that the activities of Hamas can only be described as barbarous. I mean, you know, to cross the border and shoot people dead, people attending a music festival, peaceful families living in kibbutzes. I mean, just because they happen to be Israelis, that is indefensible. But, but... The problem now is, I, while I agree that Israel has the right to defend itself and Israel has the right to exist, there is a real problem now about how they're going about defending themselves. Because if you look at the television Im images tonight of young kids, you know, bleeding, suffering, dying, elderly, elderly people, displaced, etc., those people had nothing to do with the Hamas incursion in, in into Israel. And they shouldn't be suffering. And th 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 this is going to have two consequences, in my view. First of all, the, the activities of the Israelis, they risk turning, uh, they, they, they risk being a recruiting sergeant for Hamas. We saw this uh, pattern in Northern Ireland ourselves. And secondly, they will lose, they will, they will, they will, they will evaporate, they will lose the foreign sympathy that is built up for Israel because of the initial attack. I mean, uh, you know, now I, I hope. That, um, that that the this this massing of troops, <clears throat> troops. I hope this is sabre rattling rather than incursion, because you know even even from the even from the, even from the Israeli point of view themselves, I think they'll find that when they go into this um, densely populated congested area with a lot of derelict buildings etc., with a huge underground tunnel system which of course have massive access to, they will find that it could very well be their own Stalingrad. And you know, I mean, what we really need now is a, is a ceasefire and progress towards a two-state two solution. That is the only ultimate solution. Would you have fears, Paul Murphy, to pick up on what Walid said, that this will simply drive numbers uh, from Gaza into Hamas? I mean, it drives people to resist, absolutely. Um, I think people have a right to resist. I mean, the right of Ukrainians to resist Russian <clears throat> invasion and occupation is, is widely recognised and spoken about. Um, and Palestinians have a right to resist, including to resist arms in hand. That doesn't mean, of course, targeting uh, civilians. Is um, what Hamas I, did in any way defensible? I, I, I'm not here to defend the targeting of civilians, of, of course not. Um, you condemn the uh, attack by Hamas. I, I'm opposed to the targeting of civilians, uh, but I think it's very important to recognise that what is happening right now is barbarous, is savagery, is murder. And, and it's important we don't just use that language for stuff that some Palestinians have done, but that we use it for the US-made and donated bombs that are being rained down on the people of Gaza right now and understand that the cause of what we've seen over the last number of days is the occupation, is an apartheid state that consciously discriminates against Palestinians, is a policy of ethnic cleansing. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That's, that's the root cause of this, and the answer is an end to the occupation. That's, it's just important to emphasize that and to recognize that, unfortunately, like I, I, I wish that the barbarism of Israel being carried out now will result in international support melting away. But it hasn't over the past 20 years. I mean, you've had 6,500 Palestinians killed. Over 95% of casualties in this conflict have been Palestinians. In March 2018, when you had a peaceful march, Palestinians peacefully marching to these borders, they were, they were mowed down in their hundreds. And it didn't change. The US continued to give 3 billion, 4 billion a year in military aid because it serves their interests in the region. What about the points that uh, Leo Radker made today? He said Israel does have a right to defend itself but that solidarity could fall apart if Israel go too far. But I think, does Leo Varadkar not think that Israel have gone too far? I mean, Israel is already committing war crimes. It Do is they have a, a right war crime. To themselves at this but, point? but but it's <coughs> they're not defending yourself by starving the people of Gaza. That's, that's what they've openly declared that they're doing. That is a war crime under the Geneva Convention. I mean, I've been to Gaza. It, it is so incredibly densely packed, so incredibly poor, so scarred by war. And the consequence of that is when Israel says, oh, anywhere where Hamas is will reduce to ashes. That means all of Gaza. That's, that's 100% what they're saying. And they justify, they say, we're targeting Gaza. But they're, they're, we're, sorry, we're targeting Hamas. They're not targeting Hamas. They're hitting residential buildings. Netanyahu said, you should, you should leave Gaza. People tried to leave the only way they can at the Rafah crossing, and then they bombed the Rafah crossing. And, and Willie, you did, didn't you, in the past, condemn what Israel had done in Gaza. I did. I did. And I, I did to, to, <clears throat> just to add to what has been said, I think you referred to the statement by the, the interview with the British Foreign Secretary tonight and, and the repeated statements of Mr Biden on behalf of the United States. I think they are most unhelpful because I think, you know, it is, it, it is undesirable that two powerful, neutral countries and uh, like the United States, well, I mean, neutral might be a, a, a bit of a stretch, but two countries, you know, two, two major world powers like the United States and the UK to be taking sides in this conflict. I mean, there are two sides to this matter, and let's not pretend there aren't. 
What so about the I EU's response? I, I, I haven't seen the EU's response. Um, I, I presume that the EU are calling, like myself, for a ceasefire and for negotiation and for a two-state solution. But they're not. Like they, they they are, I, I mean, they, they put the, the Israeli flag on the European Commission building and they set, sent out a statement which only recognised the right of Israel to defend itself. It didn't call not. for restraint. The Irish government, in fairness, the only thing they've done is they, they, they wanted to get a statement inserted there to say to call for restraint. They didn't get that statement, but the Irish government then signed off on it nonetheless. I don't agree with the position of the EU if that is their position. I don't agree with it. Simply. One, of, one of the interesting things has been the stance of the EU and as Paul said, you know, um, projecting the Israeli flag on the side of, of uh, the Bremont building in Brussels and also on some, uh, some well-known landmarks around Europe. And what's interesting within that as well, I think, is the slightly different stance that the Irish government has taken. Uh, Eamon Ryan was asked about the, the projection of the flag and he kind of said, look, now is not necessarily the time for, for flag waving and, and those kind of symbolism. And Barry Andrews, Fianna Fáil TD, Claire Daly as well, criticising those, those steps. Um, and the comments of, of the Taoiseach as well today about, you know, the... the the, the kind of uh, the the fragile nature perhaps of the of support for for Israel, but also drawing an equivalence of sorts between the the acts of, <coughs> of you know disabling power plants in Gaza and the acts of, of Russia in disabling power plants in Ukraine, I think indicates a more nuanced stance on behalf of the Irish government than perhaps the European mainstream, which in and of itself is quite interesting to note because generally we tend to tack with the mainstream on these things. There was also some, some interesting misreporting of the Irish stance on that that. Um, that statement that Paul referred to, it was, it was reported that Ireland refused to describe Hamas as a terrorist organisation, something the Department of Foreign Affairs has denied. Um, and in fact, what actually what happened was that Ireland called for a de-escalation. Ultimately, they did sign up to, to a statement that didn't include that. But uh, Ireland, Denmark and I think Luxembourg sought a more moderate kind of approach in that statement as well. OK, very briefly, would you have any concerns for the Irish troops currently serving over in that region? No, as, as far as I'm aware, they're confined to barracks. Uh, I... I uh, nothing has been brought to my attention that would give me any cause for concern. But it is a very dangerous part of the world, obviously, and it's volatile, and uh, the, the thing is the capacity to spread, drawing in other people like Hez other organisations like Hezbollah, etc. Uh, but uh, at the, the, the answer, the short answer to your question is at the moment, no. All right, we're going to have to leave that discussion uh, there for now, but we will be returning it to it, I'm sure, on tomorrow night's programme. My thanks to Donica O'Bacon and to my uh, other guests who spoke to me a little earlier in the programme. After the break, how will RTE tackle a TV licence fee shortfall that is now projected to be over €61 million? Euro? Well, a man questioned by detectives investigating the disappearance of Tina Satchwell in County Cork in 2017 has been released without charge. The man had been arrested yesterday, as Gardy confirmed the case had been upgraded to murder. Our Southern correspondent Paul Byrne reports from us this evening from County Cork. 
It was here at Cove Garda Station in County Cork. The man who was arrested yesterday afternoon at around 5 o'clock was released from custody again just after 5 o'clock this evening. Now, the man who was being questioned was with his solicitor, Eddie Burke, at all times. And the man himself, at his own request, decided to go without most breaks and ask Garthi to continuing with the line of questioning. He was arrested yesterday at a house in East Cork and around at the same time a house in Yall was also sealed off as part of the investigation into the disappearance and murder of Tina Satchwell who was first reported missing in March of 2017. Since then there has been absolutely no sighting of the 45-year-old woman who was married to Richard Satchwell for almost 25 years. Richard Satchwell on numerous occasions gave interviews to Virgin Media News uh, down throughout the years and has always maintained his innocence and has always said that he believed his wife had simply gone missing on her own accord and would at some stage return. The house in Yall in County Cork remains sealed off and shall do so for at least another four to five days while forensic teams carry out a detailed examination of the scene. The case itself was upgraded to one of murder yesterday. That man who was in his, or was in his 50s was arrested and taken here to Cove Garda station up until he was released at around five o'clock this evening. The case, however, remains a murder investigation. Well, speaking earlier today, Media Minister Catherine Martin said RTE is facing a shortfall of over 61 million euro. This news comes as RTE announced a round of staff redundancies as part of their cost-cutting measures. Finafoyle's Willie O'Dea, People Before Profits, Paul Murphy and political reporter with the Irish Times, Jack Horgan-Jones, have stayed with me to discuss this. So the Media Minister Catherine Martin was giving this briefing this afternoon but this figure, this 61 million figure, Jack, seemed to come out of nowhere. Did it pick, take people by surprise? And, and, and what's it based on? So it's based on an uh, so investigation by New Era, which is a kind of recession era body that was set up to, to look at uh, the finances of various state bodies. So they've been looking at RT and trying to assess just how, how big that financial black hole is. And they've come back and told um, Catherine Martin that it's 61 million, but the recommendation they've given to her is that of that 61 million, only 40 million should be met by the taxpayer and the rest should be achieved through uh, through cutbacks, basically. You know, they call them efficiencies, but to, to every man in the, man and woman in the street, they're, they're cutbacks. And to people who work at Montrose, it means things like a voluntary redundancy scheme. So I think that's the direction that we're going to see this moving in. But in the meantime, we will probably get, or we'll certainly get an interim kind of sticking plaster of funding of about 16 million allocated through the budgetary process. But, you know, we are a long way towards anything approaching financial or governance stability at RT at a, during a scandal that's been going on now for nigh on four or five months. And that 61 million figure, that is sort of presumed, I suppose, or based on a presumption that people continue not buying or not paying for their TV licence well into 2025. Yes, so it kind of takes the current trends and extrapolates out from then if people continue to behave as they have done, what are the impacts and how much of a problem does it, does it become going forward? And I think that the problem with this is that when the sense begins to, to grow amongst the public <laughs> in general, not even people who have a particular animus towards RT or people who never have paid the uh, paid the TV license. I think people just, you know, ordinary middle of the road civilians will start to think, why am I paying this? And then it becomes this kind of doom loop cycle, which really accentuates the problem facing RT. I mean, they, they're blessed. It just creates that a bigger exactly. They're blessed. Them, they're blessed. The commercial funding has has held up, but like it's it, it needs both arms of the stool 
to, to, to be firing for it to, to be a viable entity. So there's broader problems there. There's broader questions about the very model that underpins RTE, you know? Um, Willie O'D, Jack mentioned the sort of 21 million cost cutting or savings that they talk about. And Catherine Martin today was really, really reluctant to say what those measures should look like. But we did hear Kevin Backhurst, the new DG, had a meeting today, a town hall meeting with staff, and talked about this voluntary redundancy scheme, although no figures, I'm, as far as I'm correct, was put on that, how many <coughs> redundancies they would be looking for. Is this the type of cost savings that you would like to see from RTE? Well, I, I, would, I think RT is, is, is a bit top-heavy. I think I would like to see it slim down, certainly. Uh, I mean, various governments over the years have, on several occasions, requested RT to restructure and uh, put his house in order and change his management system, which, you know, the, the committee hearings show to be an absolute disaster. And uh, as I say, how the, the savings are to, be, are to be achieved is a matter for RTE itself. I mean, the government don't, the minister doesn't step in and give any directive as to who or what or how. But, um, you know, look, I mean, there may be other ways in which they can achieve, achieve the, or partially achieve those savings uh, besides making people redundant. Don't like. I never liked the idea of people being made redundant. Uh, I'm glad to hear that it's a voluntary redundancy scheme so far, but I do think that ultimately what emerges uh, after all this controversy is over and the government are in a position to fund and work with RTE again, I think what, what is in, in contemplation here, what will result actually, is a slim-down RTE. And what do you mean by top-heavy? I mean, well, maybe top-heavy is the wrong expression to use. I think... Uh, the, 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 there's several, a lot of anecdotal evidence that RT is overstaffed, that they could do with less staff. And, uh, you know, maybe, as I say, I'm not an expert in the, in the field, but may, there may be other ways in which they can acquire the savings or part of the savings, as I've said. But definitely, I think that what we're going to see ultimately here is a slim-down operation. I suppose, uh, Paul, you'll think it's unfair for staff to pay the price I, here? Exactly. I mean, the idea that the ordinary staff, the camera operators, the runners, the people, the producers, the researchers, the ordinary people who are on ordinary salaries, who aren't treated as the quote-unquote talent, the idea that they would pay the price for the actions of those at the top of RT, I think, is, is obscene. So but they're not reforms, the only ones who would pay the price. Yeah. The public would pay the price. What reforms the public would needs, you look for, then, if the government yeah. are going to have to shell out potentially 40 million and savings of 20 million. Do you think it's fair, first of all, to ask for those savings of 20 million from RTE? Or what reforms would you like to So see? I think we need a complete transformation of RTE. Um, but that means to start from a position of public service broadcasting is important. It's even more important in a world today that is dominated by social media giants owned by multi-billionaires who take off most of the advertising revenue, which previously would have gone to broadcasters and news producers, and... Yeah like, distort how people view the world. So okay, what, and I, th I, think, like, I think in fairness, Paul, I think there's widespread agreement across politics and across the public in Ireland but, that we do want to support public service broadcasting. Great, well, then let's put some money into it, right? Um, so we should put money into it, um, not through a regressive TV licence fee, which I think people are voting with their feet, and the TV licence fee should be scrapped. I mean, the poorest household in the country pays the same as the richest household in the country. It's completely unfair tax. It should be scrapped. Not through the commercial funding side, which is the other wing, which I think is responsible for the distortion of culture in RTE. But instead, we need to properly fund public service broadcasting uh, to a bigger degree than currently through attacks on these big tech corporations. We, we've put forward a very detailed policy of how we could increase funding 
for RTE, which would so need to include reforms. you think RTE should be completely publicly funded and you think the big tech companies that are here in Ireland, probably because of our low tax, should I, pay for it? I, I think that they're making super, super profits and they absolutely can and should uh, pay for it. Okay. And, and do you think there's any reforms and, necessary and, uh, yes. in the organisation? So, so it needs to be democratised. The, the interests of workers, those who view it, need to be brought to the heart of it. Um, you need to have a cap on pay, the idea that anyone is on over €100,000 in a public service broadcaster, again, uh, is obscene. You need to have an end to the poverty pay that exists at the bottom, the bogus self-employment that is widely used in RTE, and then also, and which should be funded other public, other public service broadcasting. Or you think there's no cost-saving so measures? Let's cut the, let's cut the pay. Uh, let's cut the fact that, again, those at the top pretend or like are set up in such a way not to be employees, to avoid paying tax. But let's cut the pay of those at the top so that no one's paying more than 100,000. Let's have proper public service broadcasting, including at a local level. Let's fund that. They're the kind of things that were recommended in the Future of Media uh, Commission, including going after the Sorry. big tech. Okay. Part, of, part of the problem here is actually like an absence of decision-making on behalf of the government. Paul referenced the, the Future of Media Commission report, which is adopted in its entirety by the government, with the exception of one recommendation, which was that RT should be funded by a direct taxation model. And we know that there and was... And there's no appetite for that. There's no the appetite government. for that, but like there's no appetite either to publish the outworkings of this this working group that was brought together before the Tuberty payment scandal broke to look at the future of RT and the future funding model, which was then paused and has now been pushed back until after the, all the investigations have been have been completed. And I fear that what we're seeing is, you know, the the current scandal kind of falling into the same old dance that has always existed between RT and the government, which is this kind of simmering antagonism over the structure of the model where no one actually makes any kind of fundamental decisions on reform and it just kind of limps Play along. The just continues. Yeah. All right, we're going to leave that there for now. They are in front of the Public Accounts Committee tomorrow, so we will be discussing that on the programme here. Coming up, uh, we delve into criticism that the budget did little to address the health crisis and that it's leading to tensions within government. Do stay with us for that. plus deficit predicted for the end of the year. And a large portion of non-core or once-off funding allocated was healthcare short-changed in the budget. And if so, why? Uh, Willie O'Dea, Paul Murphy and Jack Horgan-Jones have stayed with me to discuss this. Uh, Willie O'Dea, was health short-changed in this budget? Well, there's a lot of pressure <clears throat> on the health budget. Remember, we're still paying, uh, paying out money as a result of the consequences of COVID. Uh, my understanding is that the uh, budget... Uh, the, the increase in the budget this year is something in the order of a billion. But remember, there's, a, there's, a, there's an item there, non-core spending of about 4.7 million uh, for various matters relating to, you know, the, the Ukrainian refugees, etc. I'm sure some of that will be available for spending in health, uh, you know, if the need arises. I mean, a lot of things have happened in health. I mean, contrary to public perception, a lot of things have happened. I mean, for example, we've removed hospital charges. We've the biggest expansion of access to GPs. 60% of the population have now access to a medical card or a GP services card. We've reduced the drug repayment scheme to 80 euros. So, you know, whether you have a G... If, it, it, uh, in that 60%, even if you only have a GP visit card, the most you will have to pay will be 80 euros a month. Okay, so Is those are great? some of the positives and some of the negatives, of course, are the many well, people on the waiting list. Well, well the, ne the, negatives, the negatives, yes, I mean... 
Uh, at the moment, uh, with the expenditure <coughs> that's already been allocated to health, the money they are spending and will be spending next year, uh, they'll be, will be providing 2,500 additional beds, 22,000 extra staff. Uh, there's a number of hospital uh, surgical hubs being created in the country which will take some of the pressure off the A&Es. There's one happening in Limerick at the moment, I hope. At least I've been assured there is. Uh, I just want to, if the Minister is watching this programme, I just want to remind him about my, or his commitment in that regard. So, you know, it's, 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 um, it's a difficult situation. The waiting list problem is, is certainly a problem. It has hit particularly hard in my area. We have the University Hospital Limerick, the largest... And so would you have expected to see, given that, a bigger spend on health? Well, they're spending, we're spending £22.5 so it should be enough to tackle that. Is what it should saying. be enough to tackle that. We, we are just going to have to get better value for money. I mean, uh, and that's been the tension. The book. That is the yeah. Uh, isn't it, Jack Horgan Jones? Because you know, listening, I suppose, to uh, Pascal Donoghue yesterday talking about the health spend and the question about why there wasn't a bigger health spend in the budget given the demands and given the massive overrun this year that we think is mm. somewhere between one and one and a half billion. Um, there did seem to be a tension there from Pascal Donoghue who seemed to be speaking the language of, well, I need to see better efficiencies and better use of the money that is in there before I throw any money towards health, which is not really the position a government has taken before when it comes to health. Yeah, so there's a clear divergence that emerged during the budgetary process between the Department of Public Expenditure Reform, headed up by Pascal Donoghue and Stephen Donnelly's uh, Ministry for Health. And, you know, I think what is inevitable here is that there will be, across this winter, there will be trolley crises, there will be waves of flu and COVID infection that will expose the kind of weaknesses and the capacity limitations of the acute hospital system, which is when everyone starts thinking and talking about the weaknesses in the healthcare system. And because of the the visibility that has attached itself to this conflict between the two cabinet ministers and the row, the, the really dominant row uh, of the budget over the, health, the, over the Department of Health allocation, uh, I think people will hark back to this and people will link those kind of deficiencies and those trends to conscious decisions that were made at budget, budget time by the government, rightly or wrongly, because... It, because a conscious decision made at budget time only goes so far when it comes to explaining the, the, the kind of the long-standing issues that do exist in health spending in this country, where you have, obviously, as Willie has outlined, the expansion of services, but the expansion of services within the context and against the backdrop of a system that has never kind of addressed its own structural inefficiencies and the fact that it's kind of seemingly chronically bad planning and budgeting you know so that is the the one of the oldest stories i think in in politics generally but certainly in irish politics is you know the the inability to to right size and address the the healthcare crises and i think it's going to come roaring back and i think it'll be right back on the center of the the agenda come election time and um, do you think paul murphy that the overruns we're hearing about in health which perhaps has led to this position that pascal donahue took which is health isn't getting much more mm -hmm. money are those overruns acceptable I'm sure that efficiencies can be found here and there in the system. And I think the best people to find them are those who are working on the ground on the coalface of, of this. But I think it is scandalous that we have a record surplus um, and a budget which is going to make the health crisis worse, not better. I mean, th that's the reality. That's In terms of the money provided, they did not provide money for a single extra bed 
in our healthcare system. And like, that is the fundamental cause of the crisis in our health system. Well, he talked about 2,500 extra beds. That, that is, there is no, they had to, the, the, the Department of Health had to delete a tweet the referencing money, the this money, because there was the, no the money, money provided. The money already spent on health, Paul, is, 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 is going to provide 2,500 extra beds and 22,000 extra staff. So I mean, I mean, we're not. We can't just look at this in the isolation and look at it in terms of one budget. We're pouring literally lorry loads of money into health. I mean, twenty-two and a half billion is being spent on health this year in a budget. You know what the overall size of the budget is? It is. It is tremendous. It, it is. It is. And we have an huge. Aging, we have an aging population. We have, we have, yes, we have inflation. I, I, like, I, I agree. I agree with all that, Paul. I agree with all that. But you know, I mean, a budget. A budget. I can. I when I was in opposition. The budget was the easiest thing to criticise because there's all multiple choices and you have to find balance. You know, we have to we have to we have to provide for educational improvements. We must provide for improvements in the disability just, areas. Just, just one point: it's, was, not, it's not even necessary the opposition making these criticisms. Stephen Donnelly stood up today at his press conference and said, "No money for new drugs, uh, a widening a widening of the recruitment freeze." I mean, that is an implicit criticism of his own government's budget. All right, look, at we're going to have to leave that conversation, unfortunately, for now. We will get back to it. My thanks to all of my panel this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight via MTV. But from all the late team here, good night.